we will look at Isaiah chapter 2 this morning. Isaiah 2. You know, when a construction worker is down in the pit that he's digging, ankle deep in the muck and the mud, you might believe that it's a little bit hard for him to keep motivated, to keep going. But when you take that guy and you transport him up to the boardroom and you open up before him the sweeping plans for this vast project, that puts another perspective on the grunt work that he's doing day by day by day. And there are times when we are in a difficult time in our lives and it's just like that. We're right down in the pit and we're, we're weighed down by our sin or we're crushed under the weight of afflictions and trials or we're frustrated with the evil in the culture all around us that just seems to be getting worse And, you know, we're just caught up in the mucky muck of daily life. Have you been there? And in that moment, it's it's hard to have the strength to persevere. And we get into a point where we feel like maybe this is all that there is ever going to be. We get kind of this tunnel vision and we see only the immediate suffering. And what we are in great need of in those times is a passage of Scripture like this that just pulls us out of that immediate situation that we're facing and lifts us up, as it were, to the prophetic mountain to see with eyes of faith God's plan to be transported like the prophets to another place and another time into the future to see God's prophetic word and to catch a vision for what God will do. To get a great prophetic glimpse of God's grand purpose for the world. And this passage is that kind of text for the people of Israel. And I hope and trust and pray that it will be that for us who hear today as well. In the words of Isaiah, verse 1, it is the word that came to Isaiah the son of Amos that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem of things that will come to pass, as verse 2 says, in the latter days. Now at the time when Isaiah preached, which would have been the middle of the 8th century before Christ, at the time when he wrote, Israel's best days seemed to be behind them. They were plagued by sin and failure, and they were being threatened um, by the great powers of the world around them. And Isaiah has been called by God to prophesy more trouble for them in their immediate future under the chastening hand of God. But for the faithful, among God's people. For those with eyes of faith, He wants to give, and God wants to give through Him, a word of hope. A prophetic vision of a glorious 
future. And that's what this text is. So verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah's vision is about Judah, and most specifically about that capital city where God chose to put His name, that city of Jerusalem. And the mountain upon which it was built. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, maybe there's a few of you, or you've read or looked at things online and seen that, uh, you know, the mountain that Israel, that, that Jerusalem is built upon, is actually not that incredibly high. It's about 2,500 feet in elevation, roughly to, to give an equivalent nearby. It's roughly about the same uh, uh, altitude as Damascus in Syria. It is built on a, a, a hilly area, a number of hills in this on this mountain, and it is slightly higher than the surrounding area so that you can kind of see it as you come up to it, uh, especially from certain angles. And it's certainly a lot higher in elevation than a lot of Israel, the coastal plain near the Mediterranean in the west or the or the area along the Sea of Galilee, I mean the Sea of um, the Dead Sea, which is of course very low, and the Sea of Galilee and the Galilee area up north. This is this is the heights of of Israel. Uh, but the main point in this doesn't have to do with physical geography. It has to do with what we might call spiritual geography. Ever since the beginning of time, mountains were symbolic of closeness to God. It's where people went to meet with the gods. Uh, this is where priests made their dwellings, where you went to visit the, the guru, the seer, the oracle. You went to the top of the mountain. And of course, many of the world's cultures have a sacred mountain. Uh, some of you probably saw not too long back on the news the pictures of Kim Jong-un riding this white horse up the top of Mount Pictou to um, get some inspiration for some decisions that he was supposed to make at the top of that mountain sacred to the Korean people is a crystal blue lake that sits in the caldera of a of a volcano that they call the Lake of Heaven 
And it said that the founder of the Korean um, nation, the, the founder of the, the, the Korean uh, empire, uh, kingdom, who was born there, and his father had been the son of heaven, the son of God. There have been many high places like that raised up around the world in replacement of the one true God as a sort of human means or a human attempt to capture the realities of the glories of the God of heaven and manipulate them and make them accessible to us and local to us and something that we can we can have access to and can control in a way. Of course, Israel was not immune herself to adopting the high places of the Canaanite peoples around them. And they, um, in many cases in their history, rejecting the worship of the temple or adding to the worship of the temple where God chose to put His name, they would make various idols in other high places around the nation, uh, probably the greatest example, um, early example of this is the people who gathered together to build a great tower reaching up to heaven, right? You remember that story, the Tower of Babel? We will make a name for ourselves, they said. And it's fascinating that on that site as well, was raised up eventually the ancient civilization of Babylon. Babel became Babylon, and the rulers of Babylon who boasted against the God of heaven. And Babylon then became sort of the archetype of all of the devilish high places of the world. The Bible uses it frequently, not specifically to talk about, or not. Uh, uh, literally to talk about Babylon, but in many cases to talk about all kinds of other evil um, worship of what is supposed to be the one true God. But if we would understand and adopt the perspective of Isaiah and the other biblical authors, then we should become familiar with the Bible's own thematic universe and the theme of the mountain of God is a huge theme that runs through the scope of the scriptures and ties together the plan of God and really unpacks the beauty of the gospel. And so I want to take a little bit of time to think about that this morning and just focus pretty much on that in these just few verses here. The mountain of God is wherever God manifests His presence and His glory. Whether that was Eden, or Sinai, or Zion, or the new Jerusalem. Heaven, of course, is the invisible realm. It's the place where God dwells in His essence. It is it is as it were. It is the the things that are above. It is where God sits enthroned. It is where God rules with all of His host of angels. 
And the earth is the visible realm. It's the things below where men were meant to reflect God's rule a little lower than the angels. These two realms meet together in the mountain of God. That is the place where God reveals the invisible things of heaven through some sort of visible forms. The visible manifestations of the glories of the God who is seated forever in holiness and righteousness and truth and grace upon the throne of heaven. Those forms were varied over the course of covenant history. But the people went to the mountain that God has ordained to experience the presence of God manifest in some form. And all of Israel's temples and tabernacles were modeled after the invisible glory of the the temple throne room of heaven. And Isaiah is going to get a a glimpse. He will be uh, carried to the the mountain of heaven, as it were, in chapter 6. We looked a little bit ahead at that last a couple of weeks ago. But this is the idea behind the mountain of God. And in fact, that uh, I think God himself is responsible for this kind of symbolic orientation of heaven and earth and the mountain of God. The very first earthly mountain temple palace of God was Mount Eden in the very beginning, as in the Garden of Eden. And some of, someone might say, well, what, why, why do you call it Mount Eden? And I think that maybe we miss this because Genesis is not explicit, but there are very clearly, I think, indications there and other scriptures that bear this out. Genesis chapter 2, we read of God's first real manifestation of himself to his people, and it comes in a garden. Here's what the scripture says, Genesis 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every kind, uh, or excuse me, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Why don't you see a couple things here? First of all, that the garden itself is not Eden. Verse 8 says that God planted a garden in Eden. So this is the The area, you might call it, is Eden. And in that place, God planted a garden. Secondly, that Eden proper is kind of a separate, elevated place in relation to the garden. Notice carefully again the wording of verse 10. This is going to be the foundation of the imagery of the mountain of God all through the Scripture. Verse 10 says that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So since water flows downhill, as we all know, it appears that Eden was a raised place on a mountain, as as it were. 
And in fact, other scriptures bear this out as well. Ezekiel chapter 28, in applying the imagery of Eden and using that to talk about the king of Tyre, um, Ezekiel says that Eden, quote, Eden, the garden of God, was on the holy mountain of God. So here is God's habitation, the glory of God in, 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 in earthly form on the pinnacle of Eden from that holy of holies flowed out a river of blessing from God that watered the earth upon which God put man. And that river flowed, the scripture says, out of Eden to water the garden. And there at Eden, or excuse me, at the garden, it divided and became four rivers. Here's what I picture. I picture a river flowing down from Mount Eden, and as it cascades down the side, it splits into four streams, forming a very fertile area where God planted his, well, you might call it his royal garden, where he walked and talked with men, his vice-regents over the world that he had made. And of course, in, in emulation of this, kings have often built their palaces up on high places, right? All through the years. And surrounded them with gardens that provide every kind of food that they could possibly desire and give them beautiful ornamental trees and shrubs for beauty and enjoyment, the colors and the shade and the bird song, and a place really for them to meet and to stroll along with their princes and their courtiers in the cool of the evening to discuss the business of the kingdom. And the rivers that... So, so this, is the, this is the picture that we have painted in Genesis, if you read the text closely. And these rivers that flowed out of Eden eventually became, according to the text in Genesis, four rivers. The rivers Pishon and Gihon, which we don't really know what they are or where they are, where they were. And then, of course, it also split into the famous Tigris and Euphrates rivers. In that land, also, Genesis said, there was gold and precious stones like bdellium and onyx. And in that place, mankind was to offer to God his absolute fealty. To the great king, this lower king was to serve and obey perfectly, exact, entire, personal, perfect obedience was required. He was given dominion over the world. He was supposed to cultivate it and to guard the garden from all evil influences. These were his Tasks. And in turn, Adam, our covenantal head, the head of all humanity, would be elevated to, for his obedience to a place of consummate life in the presence of God. It was as if heaven and earth would become one. He would find his perfect joy and satisfaction and delight in the presence of God perfectly and forever. But Adam, of course, rebelled against his king. And he allowed that unclean thing to enter that holy temple, which is a great sin for any priest 
And Adam, that first priest, that first king, allowed the unclean thing, the Satan, to enter and to exert his influence. And rather than taking dominion over that beast, Adam and Eve were taken by that serpent. And so the king exiled his prince from the royal mountain and from the temple of his presence. And the man, who was supposed to be a kind of cherub protecting God's holy space, was now kept from that holy space by an angelic cherub bearing a flaming sword of God's fiery wrath. And the mountain of God was closed off to humankind. And that's where, honestly, every one of us was, apart from grace, cut off from God, separated from the place that we were meant to be, separated from the joys that are intrinsic in God Himself, that we were meant to share, that we were graciously created to enjoy, cut off without any possibility of access cut off because of our own sin and our own rebellion, under the curse and under the threat of divine judgment like that fiery sword hanging over their heads. And of course, the biblical story reveals to us that humankind after the fall just continued to get worse and worse, right? Mankind continued to go against God and God ultimately determined to wipe out the whole earth, the entire world that then was, as Peter says, with a great global flood. And he did so. And that world is forever lost to us in one sense. But, praise God, judgment is not the final word. Amen? And in the mercy of God, he called out a man by the name of Noah and his family and the animals, and he saved them through that fire, that deluge of water, through that watery death, he brought them out into new life. And at the end of that judgment, that, of course, foreshadows the final judgment that is going to come on all the world, the judgment by fire. Peter says there's there's a world that was destroyed by water and there's the present world which will be consumed by the fiery wrath of God, the fiery judgment of God. That at the end of that first judgment, that ark finally came to rest where? Upon a mountain. Upon a mountain called Ararat. Or more specifically, upon the mountains of Ararat, as the Bible says. And interestingly, the modern source of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers is in the mountains of Ararat. So this is kind of like Eden 2.0. This is like a new start. This is like the beginning all over again. Or what the beginning would be if we only just rewound and went back to the beginning as it was, albeit now with sin in the picture. And God said to Noah, like He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take the animals, subdue them, use them for human flourishing. 
That mountaintop then where that ark came to rest became kind of God's new temple, the place where heaven and earth meet, where the place where the heavenly mountain of God was shadowed in, in earthly forms. And the first thing that Noah did when he got off that ark into that holy mountain temple was to build an altar and to offer sacrifices to God. But Noah, just like the first Adam, fell into sin and descended quickly into depravity. You don't have to read very long after the flood story to begin to see that, right? And yet still God showed grace, amen? God called out of the world of sinful, idolatrous human beings a man by the name of Abraham. And God promised to Abraham an offspring through whom he would bless all of the nations of the planet. And one day God called Abraham to take his son and to ascend another mountain to go and meet with God there in a holy place. And that was Mount Moriah. And once again, on that mountain temple, a sacrifice was to be offered in the presence of the holy God. And this time, it was to be Abraham's son, his only son Isaac. And Abraham picked up the knife, and he wielded it above the head of his son Isaac. And just as the angel wielded the sword in the Garden of Eden, God's judgment was about to fall upon humanity. But once again... God showed mercy. And in this case, He provided a ram. God provided. This is a great theme in that section of Scripture. God Himself provided, and He provided a substitute, one to take the place of that one who was under threat. And there... In that same area, actually, 2,000 years later, the Lamb of God was slain for sinners like you and me. Amen? He was nailed to a cross, and He suffered the fiery wrath of God like that sword raised in the garden and that sword raised over Isaac. The judging judgment of God was lifted up over the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus passed beneath those swords, and He endured the the judgment of God, uh, the, the, the sword of God upon His neck when it should have been on ours and our sins. If we are believers, our sins were completely taken away in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God is progressively revealing by all of these encounters that he's orchestrating in, in, in the history of his people. He's progressively revealing the gospel little bit at a time, new and fresh ways. Well, Abraham's immediate offspring, his immediate offspring, proved to be, a, well, I guess you would say a mixed bag. Uh, lying, scheming, murderous in their hearts, some of them. And even the best of them were flawed. And they, as a people, ended up in slavery in Egypt. But once again, God determined to bring them into 
His mountaintop presence. Amen? The Lord is so graciously pursuing His people, revealing Himself to them. And He raised up to that end a man by the name of, what? Moses, yes, to intercede for them. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says that Moses was out in the wilderness and it says, as he was keeping uh, the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, he, uh, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to a place called what? Horeb, the mountain of God, which is a very fascinating thing to call it. And it became the mountain of God because God manifest himself there, that mountain in that place at that time became, as it were, a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, of the holy of holies, not made with hands, but the heavenly things after which the earthly holy holy of holies would be a pattern or a shadow. Um, He came into that place, and in this time the Lord took the form of a fiery, burning bush that was never consumed, which was a manifestation of his own self-perpetuating glory that needs nothing to fuel it, and also a display, I think, of his grace that here is the fiery presence of the holiness of God, and yet this frail, brittle bush was not consumed by that all-encompassing glory. And in that moment, God called to Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt, that God, through this this leader of his people, would show his great power and manifest his great grace and deliver the people out of their bondage. And in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12, the Lord says, I will be with you. To, to, to Moses, he says, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God says, here I make my presence known. Here I make my temple. Here is my holy of holies, my dwelling place, and you will bring the people back here, and they will worship and serve me. And this God did. For Mount Horeb, is also been called Mount Sinai. And of course you know, many of you, the, the history of what happened with Israel as Moses led them out of Egypt eventually and to, back to, just as God said, to that place on Mount Sinai. And there was the throne room of God on the top of that mountain. The heavenly temple. And it was... It was, frankly, a terrifying sight. Uh, and, and, and this is something that so many people um, don't believe, frankly. That the, uh, the sight of the, uh, of the glory of God would be terrifying to sinful people. But it, it is and it will be. I tell you, without any doubt, I warn you now ahead of time, That when His glory is revealed to sinners, it will be a most fearful thing. 
Fire blazed on the top of that mountain. Thick smoke obscured God's presence from those sinful people. The mountain shook like an earthquake, like something alive. God made uh, terrifying threats. If even one of your beasts touches the mountain, it will die, God said. And, and there were, the people were kept back. Uh, and when God spoke out of that mountain throne, it was like thunder reverberating and shaking the ground. The psalmist later asked this question, who can ascend the holy hill of God? Who would possibly be able to ascend up into heaven and come into the very presence of that mighty sovereign God? And what the people said was what every one of us should say. We need someone to go for us, right? We need a mediator, someone with whom God is pleased to go and beseech him on our behalf. And they told to Moses, they said, don't don't let God speak to us anymore. Tell him to speak to you. And then you tell us his word. Moses alone was able to ascend into that fiery mountain. And like the burning bush, Moses was not consumed. But he came away with a face glowing with the reflected glory of the old covenant and the glory of God. That mountain was a mountain of judgment, but it was also a mountain that revealed God's saving mercy. And on top of that mountain, remember Moses saw the trailing edge, as it were, of the glory of God. And he heard from God's mouth the glorious expression of his character. And while he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, he is also a God who is full of mercy, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing mercy to thousands. He is that kind of God. And Christ and His cross were the place where God's justice and His mercy meet. The cross of Jesus Christ is the that glory of God breaking through in holiness, bringing judgment upon sin, but in mercy giving salvation to the penitent. And if you will ascend into the holy mountain of heaven, then you must have Christ Jesus as your mediator, as the one Only one who's worthy to enter into the holy place of God and not be consumed. You need one to stand in your place. And there is that one, that only one with clean hands and a pure heart who is able to ascend the hill of the Lord. Not only to, not not merely, I should say, is our Lord able to ascend some earthly mountain shadow of the heavenly things, but into the true Eden, into the holy of holies not made with hands so that He can make a way ultimately for you and for me to be in the presence of the Almighty God, heaven on earth as it were, as we sang earlier, and earth and heaven be one. And 
as I was preparing this, I got to this point and I just thought, you know, let's see what time it is. You could you can follow this theme and really trace this theme um, so much further and so much deeper through the scripture. And I I would encourage you to give this more thought. But let me just paint for you the now sort of just really a kind of a fast sketch of where it goes from here. Ultimately, God established His temple in Israel on Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem. So now, the mountain temple has actually become a whole holy city. Not just a holy um, of holies, or a holy place, or a holy temple, but a holy city. And God brings great numbers of people into His realm. This is the, the city on the hill, is what it was supposed to be. And the pilgrims who came every uh, several times every year in streaming into the, the, the city of Jerusalem to that city on the hill, they foreshadowed the ingathering of all of the nations of the world. But of course, by Isaiah's day, the people of Judah and Jerusalem had turned from God to wickedness. And as he said in chapter 1, the faithful city, the city on a hill has become a whore, giving herself in spiritual adultery to all of the other gods of the world, to all of the sins of the world. And rather than being close to God, Mount Zion had sunk into the depths of sin. And they would face a a chastening from the judgment of God. But in their darkest hours, God, through the prophet Isaiah, pointed them to a future glory. The latter days, he says. In the latter days, it will be different than it is now. And I want to remind you that the writer of Hebrews identifies the latter days as that period of time that begins with the coming of Christ into this world. And Isaiah goes on to say, let's take a look at the text, that in that the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. God is saying that one day there will be a new Mount Zion. It will be a Mount Zion that's high and lifted up again. It will be exalted far above all other so-called gods and other high places of the earth and above all of the rulers who set their thrones on the tops of mountains all across the globe. His mountain, he says, in that day, in the last days, his mountain will be lifted up to the highest of heights And as a result, he says, all the nations shall flow to it. (laughs) Which is a, what kind of flow is that for, for we're, this is a, this is a supernatural flowing uphill of all of the nations, as it were, to come from the ends of the earth towards this holy mountain. And I'm reminded of what our Lord Jesus said when, 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 when he said, when, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself from all the four corners of the globe. And that's exactly what is happening and what will happen in these latter days. Prophet Isaiah goes on and he says that there will be a commitment from all of the peoples of the world, from all of the nations, to worship the God of Israel. Which, frankly, if you think about that, is is, is 
just an amazing act of, of grace how many of these nations are oriented to worship their gods. They're, they're trained up to go their own way. And now here they are giving allegiance to the God of Israel. He says, many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This is a voluntary submission of all of the peoples of the earth to follow the Lord God of Israel. And what draws them to this new Jerusalem is the word of God that streams out from that place. He says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law or the teaching and the word of the Lord will go out from Jerusalem. And of course, this is what we have, friends, we have been privileged to already get to see some of this. The gospel taking root, uh, first just among a handful of, of Jewish believers, disciples, and then spreading out to Samaria and to Syria and to Turkey and to Greece and to Ethiopia and then through the centuries to Africa further down and to Asia farther east and to Europe and to the Americas. I mean, it's just literally coming to pass like the Lord has spoken. These are unprecedented days. I mean, I don't know if we just take it for granted because we live in these days. But we are seeing to it in a great measure the glory of the Lord and the filling out of His promises exactly as He predicted. The Bible, the Bible is being published in thousands and thousands of languages across this globe. In many languages and people groups, there are a number of translations of the Bible. There are countless books written about the Word of God, filled with God's words, giving light to God's people. You see, I was just thinking about this this week as I knew I was preparing to preach to you. You are more enlightened in some ways than, than most of God's people have been in the history of the, the world. But even still, with all of the, the beginnings of the, the glory already dawning upon us, we still long for the full experience of this prophecy, don't we? Because look what it goes on to say, verse 4. And he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Here is a doing away with of the implements of war and of the practice of war and of the art of war. And of course, in some ways, the gospel has already had this effect as it shapes hearts and minds, lives, people, family, nations, communities. We have seen the effect of these things. We have seen it. But of course, in another way, the threat of wars are just as near as you know yesterday morning's headlines. Massive armies amassed on the borders, various nations, Troops stationed all around the world prepared at a moment's notice to unleash 
great violence upon one another. There is still so much sin and suffering in the world. And you know, this to be honest, our own personal lives too. I mean, we we long for this kind of glorious vision, and yet we don't even experience it fully in our own selves. And it's easy, I think, in the moment, right? In struggling with sin and reading the news and watching what's happening. It's easy in that moment to become discouraged, to become downcast. And what the Lord graciously does for us is to pull us up to this visionary stance, to see with the prophet the word of the Lord that is coming and will come to pass. We may not understand all of us the same way exactly how successful this will be before the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we know that it is a certainty that He will do it. And the rest of the Scriptures just continue to uh, carry on this theme to encourage God's people. Daniel chapter 2, we read earlier, right? The rock that crushes all of the earthly kingdoms becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. This is the highest of the mountains. Ezekiel, in his part, pictures uh, on the mountain of God a holy temple, uh, a temple that is growing in its, in its size, compared to the temples that Israel has known before. Now, Ezekiel's temple seems to take up the entire city of Jerusalem has become a temple. The whole area of the city is now a, the, the temple space of God. And out of that temple, a stream is flowing, right? Does this sound familiar? Out of that temple in Ezekiel's vision, a stream flows like from Eden, and it brings life causes the tree of life to grow, bringing healing to the nations. And and there are 12 gates on that city, three gates facing in every direction that the peoples of all of the earth, the four corners of the globe, might stream into it. That city is illuminated with the glory of God like the burning bush on Mount Horeb. Jesus takes up this same kind of language and imagery in John not for when he's talking with the woman at the well. Remember, and she comes, and this is a a, a Samaritan woman, and she says to him, uh, our fathers worship, where? On our own sacred mountain, right? Over here on Mount Gerizim. This is where we go to worship God. And you guys say that you should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus' answer to her was that, that her people worship what they do not know, but that the day is coming when worship will take place not either on Mount Mount Zion, of uh, physical Mount Zion, or on Mount Gerizim, but all who worship God through Jesus, through Himself, have come to that heavenly mountain and have experienced the true um, reality breaking through those earthly forms and coming to rest upon them. In John chapter 7, he stood up in the great feast and he said, whoever believes in me, out of his heart 
will flow that river of life that poured out of Eden, that river that flowed from the throne in Ezekiel's vision. He will be lifted up to the mountain of God, come to experience the joy of communion and fellowship with the thrice holy God in and through me. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, in Hebrews 12, beginning of verse 18, He says, now you have not come to what may be touched, those things that are made with hands, those earthly things, those types and shadows from from Mount Sinai. He said, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. If they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, he says, you who have come to Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Isaiah was preaching to a people of earthly Jerusalem in his day. And they saw so much wickedness and so much Um, sin and so much destruction that was impending and he points them forward to a day of of a new Jerusalem upon the holy mountain of God. Uh, a, A day in which the heavenly Jerusalem is brought to earth. And you have come, he says, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, what is that pointing to? It's showing you a glimpse. It's opening our eyes and giving us a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. The invisible things where God's people are with Him, ruling and reigning over all things at the top of the mountain. And we are a part of that. We are one with the saints triumphant even while we are here as the saints who are persecuted and and struggling and laboring. And then we come to Revelation 21. And there John sees the heavenly Mount Zion come down to earth and earth and heaven be one. The invisible becomes visible with the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the heavenly reality is ultimately displayed on earth and the dwelling place of God is with man. And it says in verse 4 of that chapter that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All things have become new. And in that vision, very interestingly, the angel leads John away, he says, to a great high mountain. And on that mountain, he shows him the new Jerusalem. That new Jerusalem, surrounded by the walls of salvation, with twelve gates, three on each side, so that the peoples of the earth can stream in and bring their glory and their honor into that holy temple 
there is in that place also a river and a tree of life. And God himself is the light of that city, and there is no more curse upon that land at all. The swords are beaten into plowshares. All God's will is done from the heart. This is the glorious vision that God sets before us, His people, to encourage us in our, in our weakest times. Isaiah, uh, I mean, Revelation 21, verse 24 says, By the light of God, by the light of God will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Here, you see where history is going? Here in the final garden mountain city is the ultimate path, the ultimate trajectory of where the first garden was heading. And while man failed to keep the evil and the, uh, the, the, the unclean out of that garden, this garden will be entirely purified. Christ himself, who has entered into the heavenly places by his own righteousness, as his own obedience, perfect obedience to the Father, has opened up a way for us to enter into that place where there is nothing unclean. We'll ever enter it. No more curse, no more sin, no more war, no more, no more uh, anything that brings uh, evil into that place. He says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does do it is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Are you trusting in the Lamb of God to take away your sins? Are you turning to that King of kings and submitting your life to Him? And now in Revelation, this is just kind of fascinating to follow the trajectory of this mountain temple because now its size being measured by an angel is gargantuan. I mean, it's off the scales of normal human measuring. It's that big. It's like this, this, this kingdom has grown. This mountain has come to fill the entire earth. It is truly now the highest of the mountains. It is the city that fills the whole earth. It is the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the sea where there is no more sin or violence or bloodshed and the whole world is full of entirely purified people finding their deep and everlasting delight and satisfaction in God Himself and in His immediate presence with them. I, my, my heart in preaching this is that it might have the effect that I think it was intended to have for the faithful of that old Jerusalem that in the midst of you know, being distraught when we hear the news or being discouraged by our own failings, in the midst of being frustrated with the evil around us and anxious over wars and rumors of wars, that we might have a vision to see 
that the purpose of God has determined that there is a day coming. That there is a day, and it now is, when the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be the highest of the mountains. And the Lord says, Behold, I am making all things new. And if you, like me, struggle in the moment to really believe that and bank on that, the very next words out of the mouth of the Lord are these. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And that's what we have to do, is just bank on the words of our God. That what He has promised, He is doing, and He will do. And so I leave you with the words of Isaiah in verse 5. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bless You for such encouraging words from Your mouth. We pray that they would have their good effect. Give us eyes to see what the prophet saw and give us faith to see and to believe. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.